Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumb Picks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going on to this week's show. All right, so this is episode 102 and the first official episode of season five. Welcome to it. My guest today is the legendary Peter Rowan, and this is part one of that conversation. Part two will be released a week from today, next Wednesday. And as I started working on these um, shows again, I realized that a lot of them that I've been doing for season five are pretty long again in a good way, but it seems that probably almost all of the episodes um, in this season will be split into two parts. There's some technical issues with making episodes more than an hour. 
how they get posted and stored and shared. So I do need to break them up. And this one is going to be broken up into two parts. So make sure you check back in next week and get part two. I would just like to thank some of the recent financial supporters of the show. We couldn't do it without you. So thanks to Mary Sue Ulvin, John Dulce or Dolce. I'm not sure about that one, but thank you. John Johnson, David Klein, Rosemary Costello, Chris Thornley, and David Monahan. Thank you guys so much. So this interview took place actually quite a while ago. It was meant to be part of season four, but things just got kind of out of hand for me with packing up and moving and moving my studio and whatnot. And I was left without a place to get everything finished. So here we are. It was a great conversation with a total legend of roots music. And I I guess bluegrass in particular, although Peter's been involved in so many cool projects that aren't really bluegrass as well, but really that's, I, you know, I guess where the, the focal point of his career has been in bluegrass. And I do want to point out that sadly we did have some technical glitches in our conversation. Um, I think I have those issues licked now, which mostly have to do with Skype and how it interacts with, with the recording stuff that I'm using. And, uh, it just kind of goes a little haywire sometimes. So as of this year, I've packed it in. I'm not using Skype anymore. I'm just using zoom and zoom seems to be pretty solid for, for doing stuff like this. But this was, this was the last one I did on, on Skype. And there were some pretty great moments in this episode that got all garbled up. Uh, you won't hear those cause I edited the glitchy parts out, but it does leave some holes in the story. So that's what happened there. And when we hit that snag, we, we also had to cut the conversation a little short. Uh, and there were a lot of great projects that I did want to talk to him about and didn't get to like his collaborations with Tony Rice and Jerry Douglas and some of his solo projects, all of which I love, but you know, they'll just have to wait till next time. But we did take a lot of deep dives here and, uh, we got into his early years around new England and the folk scene there and his influences on guitar and songwriting and singing and how he came to join Bill Monroe's band. It's all so great. Uh, we also get into his work with Grisman and Garcia and Olden in the way. And we do get a chance to talk about his latest band and project as well, which is super cool. His latest album is called Carter Stanley's Eyes, and it's a beautiful record, and I highly recommend it, so go check it out. He's a very prolific fellow, and I'd imagine that he'll be back out on the road pretty soon in whatever format he feels like. And uh, so please check out his activities and support his music at peter-rowan.com. All right, let's get down to it. This is part one of my conversation with Peter Rowan. But at the time, I didn't feel I was much of anybody, so I was just real shy and uh, in their early 20s. Um, and, and there was a competition. That different members of different bands were... Um, uh, you were one of Bill's boys. If you were a bluegrass boy, you were one of Bill's boys, you know? Yeah. One of, or you were one of the Stanley's boys, you know? Now, the only guy, the, one of the guys who crossed over, of course, uh, uh, Curly Ray Crying, the fiddle player, you couldn't, he crossed over every boundary because he always said who he was, you know? He always, mm-hmm. he's, you know, he was Curly, I'm Curly Ray, you know? Another guy who, who could cross over easily was Jack Cook, who had, uh, been a bluegrass boy and recorded with Bill Monroe as a guitarist and then spent all the rest of his life really playing bass for, for, uh, for Ralph Stanley. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and he was another guy who was, you know, 
you know, you get the, the bigger than life personalities, uh, and oh, you live in, Na- in you live in Nashville, right? You see yeah. it all the time. I sure you do. Know what? You know Charlie Pride. You know the the black. Yeah. Wit, say black. I mean, I don't know singer. him, but yeah, of course, yeah. You know, you know who he is. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, I was a, a bit awestruck. He got on a one of those uh, Southwest Airline flights with me oh, one really? day. Yeah. And. Uh, and you know this, you you recognize this right away. It's like I'm looking at Charlie Pride, right? And and he's he's like, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, <laughs> it's like, right? You know, he's shaking my. He's like, "How are you doing?" You know, he makes you into a person because you you're you're putting him sort of you know you got that gaze because he's a, he's a a person. He's a celebrity. He's known, but but you never met him, but you know who he is, right? Yeah, and and he reaches right out and makes you into a person. That's cool. Hey, how are you doing there? You know, like we're old friends. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's an old uh, showbiz trick, you know. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, and the old, all the players on the Grand Ole Opry when I was there as a twenty-two-year-old, uh, they all had that thing going, you know. Uh, but they also had this whole weird backstage thing going on, which was. Bill Monroe had a dressing room with Wilma Lee and Stoney Cooper and Hank Snow. Those were the three acts in one dressing room. Wow. And it was great because, you know, you got to hear all kinds of music back there, and occasionally there'll be jams. Uh, Roy Husky Jr.'s dad, Junior Husky, yep. was an antic, uh, high-energy guy. He would, he would play with Acuff, and he'd pop into Bill's dressing room, and he'd slap bass during a tune, and... I mean, he was just on when he was there. And uh, it was a whole show backstage. And, of course, Flat and Scruggs, who had been Bluegrass Boys, yep, the yep. original band with Bill, um, and they had left Bill. Bill never fired them. They had left him to form Flat and Scruggs, you know, mm-hmm. as most you know folks will always do. Uh, they weren't allowed in the dressing room. They, they really? had to stand in the hallway, in the hallway where, <laughs> where the 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 black shoe shine guy was. And I don't think he was D. Ford Bailey because I met D. Ford Bailey, who was the again, you know, black or colored, as they preferred to say, a harmonica player who played with Bill Monroe, right, and was on the road with him. Um, so it's. Uh, you know, the South is a funny place. It's very confusing in some ways. I'll say, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm Canadian, so for me coming down oh, yeah. here, it's been culture shock, you know? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, and people will, will talk about you behind your back so that you can hear them. I don't right. know if you've, ever, if you've experienced that. <laughs> you know, uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie. I'm right here. Charlie, <laughs> Charlie Leuven and... Uh, um, uh, the guy made the pedal steel guitars. Oh, well, he was down at his shop, and I was wandering around. I was in C Train, and we were playing up in Kentucky at the time. And, and we'd come down, and I had like a ponytail and a cowboy hat. And, and you know, without a, uh, you know, it was, I had to, if I was going to stand up and be a man, I would have to turn around and go, hey, you guys, it's me. It's Pete Rowan. <laughs> I haven't been here in a while. But I was, you know, I was just sort of looking around the stacks of records, and I hear, well, there's somebody over there who's gone the hippie route, <laughs> you know, and I didn't realize it at the time, but that was just the, the opening, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, 
I just, I was like cringing. I was like, oh shit, they're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> when you were in that scene, like back in those days, was that your, like, were you kind of seen as like the hippie kid? You know, no, 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 okay. I, no. I mean, well, we played down in Alabama down there with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. That was, I always liked that side of the, well, that's mostly where we went. We went all the way down to uh, Alabama, down to Cat Square. There was a place called the Cat Square Grand Ole Opry. You know, it, but these little gigs, they would use the names of the big places they admired, right? Right. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> Can't get away the with cats, it. The Cat Square Grand Ole Opry. I mean, it was wow. it was it was just a little a, a roof with posts and a chicken wire and just a bunch of benches, <laughs> you know, outdoors. And uh, but oh, Monroe, Louisiana. Okay. That, that we did that run down through Alabama into Monroe, Louisiana, to play the. I think it was the Cat Square Grand Ole Opry. When I, we were down there, I was standing out uh, between sets at one of at this festival at Horse Pens, Alabama, and uh, this big old farmer comes up to me, and he reminded me so much of of, of one the farm people that worked where I grew up. In the, they worked the fields there, and they worked for mostly one, a couple of big farms. Up, uh, well, in those days, they weren't big farms. One was a family farm. Two, both were family farms up in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you know, one, my first experience with country was being lifted on to a, a horse-drawn uh, uh, raking rig and sitting in the, the guy's lap and and hear him cluck the horses on. And, and, and it, was, it, it was, I was really little, four or five years old, but that, I'll never forget that because, you know, when you see, when you're little and you see horses hauling stuff around. And so I saw that as a kid. And so I'm down in horse pens, uh, Alabama and this big old country guy farmer comes up and he's yep he's like you know six feet of overalls and a straw hat and a sincere face you know and he reminded me so much of old Mr. Carver who used to drive the team and and mow in the fields around where I grew up and I so I, I I never had any difficulty making friends in the South, but the funny things was <laughs> this farmer looked at me and said, well, I hear you're from Massachusetts. <laughs> and, I go, and I go, yes, sir, I am. And he goes, well, I'll be. He goes, are you a communist? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in all sincerity. Wow. It's it was a different, like different world, man. No, not are you like, are you an enemy, but are, are you communist? It's like, kind of curious, what does communist look like? <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you the truth, I had to take an oath when I joined the Musicians Union in Nashville. I don't think you'd have to do that anymore. But um, Kennedy had been assassinated, you know, and so they had picture of LBJ and Kennedy on the walls. And... Um, um, what was his name? The head of the union at the time had me come in, and Bill Monroe stood up for me. You wow. know, this was a this was a big deal. I stood up, and I had to raise my right hand and swear. He, the question was, "Are you now? Have you ever been, or do you intend to ever be a member of the Communist Party?" Wow! To join the musicians' union. To join the musicians' union in Nashville. <laughs> That's <laughs> bananas. The oath, man, and, and Bill standing right next to me. Yeah. Oh, 
Well, of course, I said, no, of course not. <laughs> it was true. I was never going to, I'm never going to get the paperwork done, as they said. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so the traditional thing about bluegrass is, it's all through those people. It's right. all those people, people, Joe Val up in New England, Joe Valiente. He was a typewriter repairman and he was, he had a, a band up there with Herb Applin. And when I was like 17, 18 years old, just starting to go out of the house, you know, I had a, I could drive a car mm-hmm. uh, and I would go to the folk clubs and around Boston and go to the hillbilly ranch. And, you know, it was very, the population was much less than it is now. Yeah. So you could get around and, you know, you go to Boston, you go here, Sunday, Terry and Brown and McGee, and you drive over the Massachusetts Avenue bridge or take the subway and you go here. The Charles River Valley Boys or Bill Keith and Jim Rooney. And there's this mandolin player named Joe Val. And he was, he was, he was the real deal. And he was a country oriented guy. In other words, he wasn't like a, a city bill. He's so much as uh, college educated musicians and people like that. Mm-hmm. But he, but he knew the stuff. So he was the first guy, he and Tex Logan, the, really an older generation than myself. Mm-hmm. They're much older, you know, 15 years older than I. Um, they taught me. So I, I never, I, I was related to that side of the music. Uh, okay. the, progress, the progressive thing was just, uh, I mean, I don't know what you'd call progressive. We, all we did when, on Old and in the Way was extend solos. We didn't do anything different. We just yeah, tried right. to play this play bluegrass we just extended the solos which you know where that comes from that comes from bluegrass only being you know the only gigs you could get would be like pizza parlors and restaurants and you'd have like five sets a night so every solo would be every solo would be stretch a, it out complete, boys the complete solo right take it again vassar <laughs> yeah you see an old in the way somebody would take the verse and somebody would take the chorus because right. that was just but it was musical at that. By that point, it was like, yeah, let's just stretch it out, you know. But I don't think we even talked about stretching it out. It was just what we didn't love the music so much mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. just wanted more of what bluegrass was, you know, yeah. which was like, well, let's open up just the sort of intuitively opening up the solos and then using songs like Wild Horses and stuff like that. The first band that, that really did that was uh, John Duffy and the Country Gentleman with Charlie mm-hmm. Waller. They did It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And I thought that was a really good performance. They did that at the first Bluegrass Festival in Fincastle, Virginia in 65. You know, yourself as a songwriter, you kind of, that's the horse you're riding. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, like the, during these days right now, I, 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 I'm planning to make another record for Rebel, who, who wants that side of me because they, that's how he, they know me. The traditional side. Well, it's traditionally oriented, you know, right. rooted. Yep, yep. But, but I mean, if we had Jamie Oldacre playing percussion awesome. on this on this record, now Jamie just passed away. God bless him. And uh, you know, he was Eric Clapton's drummer for many, yeah. many years, and uh, JJ Kales too. And well, we knew we had to make a, a traditionally uh, the record company. They want the roots. Mm-hmm. They they want the roots. That's the, that's the audience that they believe is is you know, they're, uh, you know, who, who, who are buying their records and, and, you know, they're doing a great thing. They're putting out records of unknown people who sing traditionally. 
Right. And, and it's nice. It's nice to hear. Um, but, you know, by adding Jamie, we added percussion in a way that was not like adding a drummer to bluegrass, which right. I never, I think never works. Uh, yeah, I agree. Me, musically, it just, it's awkward. But Jamie was so fluid and knew the roots so well. You know, he could play, uh, you know, James Brown had uh, two different drummers who interpreted what James wanted. Yep. His own, you know, the, the James Brown beat. And uh, Jamie had met both of them because while he was with Clapton, they did shows with James Brown and stuff. Okay, yeah. Ike Stubblefield. Yeah, yeah. And he knew both of those drummers rendition of that beat that did but james brown was a drummer you know and mm. and he wanted a kind of a, a boogaloo shuffle kind of a, a, a bow diddly turnaround or something you know and uh but jamie could play both of them together and so when i when i told when i we talked about him we, we did a lot of music that was more on the rock and roll side with yep. jamie down in texas but um when it came down to doing the bluegrass thing, I thought, God, you know, it'd be great to have an element in there that's as deeply rooted as the rest of the music is, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the, it's hard to say. Bluegrass, you can't really pin it down, but somewhere in there, there's, there's a, 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 maybe it's just the ensemble route. But, uh, I mean, for, as a guitar player, though, I've gone back and studied all the styles that have gone into being bluegrass guitar playing. And, you know, quite a lot of it comes from Blind Lemon Jefferson. Sure. How to play the guitar in those days with a finger pick and a thumb pick. Yep. Uh, like in Les fact, Lester Flatt too, right? Like Lester Flatt and Carter Stanley. And big secret, you can play fast mm -hmm. with, a, with a thumb pick and a finger pick. <laughs> That's right. Because all you're doing is going thumb, finger, thumb, finger. You're not going... It's half as much down, work. Downstroke, stroke, downstroke, stroke. You're yeah. just going boink, ding, boink, ding, boink. You know, it... And I mean, you can really enjoy bluegrass playing like that, you know, because everybody wants. Do you play with a thumb pick and a finger pick too? I am nowadays. Yeah. Oh, cool. And, uh, okay. And, well, I just for this record, I started it because, you know, I realized that I was using so much of my chest and shoulder muscles mm -hmm. to play guitar. The D twenty eight's a big guitar. It is, yeah. You know, and I mean, if you can get your wrist going, great. But you're still holding this monster up against your chest and squeezing it, and. Um, I found that I've always finger picked and I found that if I just went down to this very simple style, it just involves not the wrist, not the shoulder, not the arm, nothing. It just involves two fingers and, uh, and you can really focus on the singing. And I think that's part of the charm of uh, those uh, early vocals by those guys, you know, uh -huh. Clyde Moody played that way. Uh, and Clyde Moody did a song called Six White Horses, which is basically the same song that Blaine Lemon Jefferson did earlier called uh, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean. Right. And the the run is the same. The, the famous uh, E run is the same run that Earl Scruggs used on all his uh, guitar playing on all the gospel tunes that, mm -hmm. the, that the Flat and Scruggs band did. But uh, so, you know, to get Jamie Oldacre in the band, he had that knowledge. Uh, he, he played with, you know, with R&B bands, you know, with black R&B bands. He had played with, with roots music, you know. Uh, was he from Oklahoma or was he one of those Yeah, he's from guys? Tulsa. Right. He's from Tulsa. Yes, J.J. Kale and Leon Russell and, uh, you Jim know, Keller. all those guys. 
Kellner yeah. it, it was his 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 hero. I mean, he he just thought Kellner's interpretation of the of the Tulsa thing was was beautiful, and of course it is. Yeah. Uh, um, but Jamie himself, you know, he worked with Peter Frampton. He also worked with uh, uh, Night Moves. The guy, um, Bro, Bob uh, Seger. Bob C. He worked with Bob Seger. He may have been on Night Moves, uh, but but Jamie, you know. He appeared in so much pop, popular music, rock and roll, but deep down inside, he was—he loved the roots of everything. Interesting. And and with us, he played, you know, uh, a cajon, a little hand drum thing, okay. and yeah, and a snare. And you'd look over, and he'd have a tambourine beaten against his knee under the snare, which he'd be playing with the other hand. Right. And creative he wasn't he wasn't like could you turn me up you know it wasn't like that it was like we we talked about it it was like we're playing acoustic music how would you approach acoustic music and he you know sometimes he'd play with his fingers and sometimes with a stick or a you know he'd he'd, he'd make it happen during the set you know he'd he'd fulfill the the range of uh, when we played live the range of what what drums really can do you know he'd he get into into those boogaloo shuffles and things underneath bluegrass, oh, but man. in a in a way that was really uh, rootsy. And for example, there was I don't know if you know this um, a Mississippi fife and drum music. Sure, yeah, you know that stuff. Yeah, uh, you bet. Well, I always thought that was that was something really special. It sure is. I thought, what if that was the underneath bluegrass? You know, in some some fashion, you know, not the big old marching bass drum into the snare. Yeah, but, yeah. But and so that's what Jamie did with us. He, you know, he, we we absorbed that. We did one tune. Uh, Can't you hear me calling? Which it starts out with a press roll and a backbeat on the bass drum, which is like reggae. Right. You know, uh, sweetheart of mine. Instead of sweetheart of boom chicky boom chicky boom it's yeah. more sweetheart of press roll chunk can't you hear me press roll chunk, chunk. you know right. i, I love discovering that and and that was jamie's interpretation i said i'd play him a little strum on the guitar i said well, how would how would you play this on the drums you know and he and he would you know so i mean because that's that's what's exciting to me about about the bluegrass thing. It, it's not a finished story. I mean, it, it is, it's not a closed book. That's you right. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, it's definitely like got its boundaries and, and sort of limitations in that sense, in that if you go too far from those, it's just not bluegrass anymore. But, you know, there, there's a few styles of music, like, you know, funk is sort of like that too, where, where if you just like, like venture too far outside, you're just not doing that thing anymore. And that's adding right. drum, drums is one of those things where it sort of becomes more like country music rather than right. bluegrass at that point. But but having a guy like that is super creative and fun and yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I really uh, do want to honor him by saying that because, you know, very unusual. And it's it's not that other drummers couldn't do that. It's just that nobody wants to take the time. Right. Because it's not required. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can read the Reader's Digest version of Bluegrass. So who cares about the novel? <laughs> who cares about the epic? <laughs> um, you talked about a bit about um, growing up in, in Massachusetts. And I wonder if you yeah. could just back back up for a second and just tell me a little bit about like your early influences and um, 
you know, you mentioned sort of the, the, the bluegrass scene that was happening around around Boston. But if you could tell me uh, about your experiences in, in the scene there and leading up to uh, you mentioned Bill Keith. And, and so like some of the some of the characters that you ran into in that scene, but how it, how that led to playing with Bill Monroe. It's sort of a long story, but when I was about four years old and my parents took me down on, on Cape Cod and we stayed out at a place called Black Beach. We had a cottage there and I, they let me out on my own into the yard and down to the beach and don't go too near the water and all that. Yeah. And when I, went, I was out there and I heard this guitar playing and there were two, they may have been Harvard students or, or they could have just been, uh, I don't know who they were, but they, <laughs> they were like troubadours. Yeah. There's two young men on the porch of the house next to where I was. And, you know, my mother, you know, she was like, you know, don't stray, you know, it's a, and I had wandered into their yard and I just stood wonderstruck by these two guys playing guitars on the porch. And my mother called me in, this and that, and that, you know, and well, and those guys later on came over to the house and said, we noticed that your son it really, really responds to the music. Uh, oh, cool. And uh, we'd like to play a few songs. And my mother and father, I remember they had a discussion. Well, we don't know these people, you know, it's like <laughs> New England, you know, they haven't entered, we've not been introduced to them, you know, <laughs> you know, but they came in and they played and they had, I remember they had checkered shirts on, Okay. but they, they weren't like an act, but they could have been anybody. They could have been a couple of local country players from the area, or they could have been the burgeoning of the guitar players that came out of Harvard Square that were like folk singers type people. I don't know who they were. I was only four. I'm sure because my younger brother, Chris, was born when I was five and he wasn't there. So, so there was something planted in my mind about that. And then my, my, my mother's sister's brother, we called him uncle George, George Wallace played guitar. Okay. And we would go to a family party every year at his house and, He'd have this guitar. I have the guitar. It, it's a, it's a Monterey. It's a piece of wood from Mexico with strings on it, and it, <laughs> it it's just it's okay, you know. Yeah. But yeah. when I saw that as a kid, see, I had seen those guitars, and it was I was fascinated by the fact that they made that sound. And when, when I would go up to my uncle George's house, and you know, while the grown-ups are all chit-chatting, I would just look at that guitar, mm-hmm. just it's sitting there right on this little shelf, you know low down enough where I could see it. And it just fascinated me that this sound would come out of there. Uh, and then my mother's brother, um, our uncle Jimmy Richards, uh, my memory of him was, I, I sort of knew him a little bit vaguely as a, uh, as a six or seven year old. But, you know, he, it, it, he, he, he would come and go, my Uncle Jim. You know, yeah. he was he was young. He was, what, 18 or something like that, you know, 22. A drifter. Anyway, anyway they were called into the service. Both of my, my uncles went to the ser- into the Army, and Uncle Jimmy went in the Navy. And when I became really aware of Uncle Jim was when he came back from the service. And again, I was not much older, five, six maybe. And, but again... The completely clear memory of Uncle Jim dressing us up in grass skirts from the South Pacific <laughs> and, and uh, putting on his sailor cap 
and dancing around the living room, playing the ukulele, singing, I want to go back to my little grass shack in Kualaka Kukua, Hawaii. <laughs> Love that song. Yeah. And, you know, so he taught me to play. Uncle Jimmy taught me five foot two. Yeah. On the ukulele, five foot two, five foot two, ain't she sweet. And then the tune I loved, which even he couldn't play, but he could do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You have an uncle who can really deliver a song, but. You know, he only knows maybe <laughs> right, two right. of the courts. <laughs> and he could, he could deliver Bye Bye Blackbird. And okay. It was beautiful, you know. And I guess I was a little bit hip, seduced by the fact that somebody could bring all the energy in the room together by performing. Uh, right? yeah. uh, so then, you know, I learned the uke. And then, then as a young 11, 12-year-old, there was a, in the Massachusetts town I lived in, there was something called in the spring called the Strawberry Festival, which was a combination of old-time music, square dancing, and uh, a lone bagpiper who would walk through the crowd when it was time for it to be over. Wow, you that'll know, do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I was like, oh, whoa, <laughs> what, what are these bagpipes, you know? <laughs> but um, it's funny enough, though, that, see, my parents had me do dancing, okay. uh, do social dancing. We yeah. did ballroom dancing and we did square dancing. Uh, Friday night was square dancing. You, you know, you were your, I had a little funny tie and everything. Uh -huh. And you know, it was Skip to Maloo and it was all really great, great fun, you know, for a kid. Uh, yeah. Square dancing, doing the the Texas star, the, the dive for the oyster, dig for the clam, all this, yeah. all these funny, funny calls, you know, they would do. But then the next night was ballroom dancing, you know, in ballroom dancing at a 12 year old holding girls close. Sure. Bring it on. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and uh, parents, uh, chaperones coming over and say, uh, you need to come out of the corner here, right? <laughs> you know, uh, back into the light where we can see you. <laughs> you know, and you're just hypnotized as as children yeah. becoming pub pubescent, you know, sure. just hypnotized by the thing. And uh, just a funny thing about the, there was always live music. And okay. it was always this guy named Louis Belson had a bunch of, trios and quartets that would yeah. go out and play, play local dances. A few years later, when I was 14, I went to a rock and roll show and saw Chuck Berry and uh, a bunch of other oh, man. wonderful, wonderful uh, players of the time. And the, the house band was the Louis Belson Orchestra. No way. Yeah. And the DJ was Joe Smith, who, who was a local DJ promoting rock and roll who later became the president of Electra Asylum Records and signed me and my brothers. Wow, that's crazy. Isn't that wild? So, you know, I'm out there doing record hops around Boston. By, you know, by that time, by, by at 14, I, you know, I had my band called The Cupids. Yep. And we, were, we had three electric guitars, a piano, and drums, and that was it. That's a good lineup. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was really good. And lots of singing, really yeah. good harmonies, because we were all like Glee Club members and... You know, we learned to sing in church and this and that. And uh, and one night, uh, somebody told me, you know, that, you know, you ought to go over to Harvard Square because there's a lot of music there. And so we were in Boston playing what they call a record hop, right? And girls wore, uh, you know, white bobby socks and danced barefoot. Uh, what they call a sock hop? They call it a sock hop. 
Okay. I mean, you sort of hopped around dancing, but you, in your stocking feet. And that was the thing that the girls like to do. And, okay. uh, and so we're coming back from the gig, and it's probably nine at night, you know. What kind of stuff were you playing in the band? Like, what kind of music kind, was it? Kind of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens type okay. of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. I like that sound, that sure. Texas kind of. I like the crickets a whole lot. Yeah, man. And, you know, we did some of the Chuck Berry. I think we did, you know, and some coasters. Mm-hmm. You know, we could, uh, you're imitating, but you don't want to fake it. You know what I mean? Right. You know, and and I, that's the thing about the folk music movement was like it got confusing because, okay, I'm a Yankee. Am I faking it if I <laughs> if, if I play bluegrass? You know, yeah. And but or am I faking it if I sing a blues? Right. Especially, you know, and I go yeah. show show enough, you know, and and start talking and patois and just that. People were doing everything. You know what I mean? They were imitating. They were doing this. They were doing that. Yeah. Uh, um. And and I my sort of musical hero was Lead Belly. Nice. And another guy at the time who had a lot of records was Josh White. Sure. And he had learned from Big Bill Brunsey. They had played together. And yep. the influence from Big Bill was really remarkable. Uh, you can you can follow that name back in through history and even find stuff on YouTube now and see how gracious, a great, a graceful Big Bill Brunsey was with the guitar. And they were He's all playing amazing. these acoustic. These acoustics, they were playing acoustic guitar. Did you get to see him? I know I never saw Big Bill Brunsey, but he no. went to England. A friend of mine saw him mm-hmm. uh, in England. He, he did tour England. But, you know, Josh White, uh, he was the carrier forth of what I heard Lead Belly doing, sort of. Yeah, and, and, and was he around the, the Boston area? Well, he came around. Yeah. He came around and played. Uh, I got to meet him one, my, in my first year in college. Oh, man. He played up at Colgate University, and the upperclassmen who they were gl- glad that I had come to the school because the, I played a, a, I played guitar and I sang a lot, and and there was a tiny group of four or five people who were into folk music and bluegrass, and and I loved, but I was playing blues. I wasn't playing any bluegrass. I was just playing what I had heard from Lightning Hopkins, and okay. that's the music that appealed to me. And they took me back, and I met Josh White after after his concert and he was completely friendly he completely and and i've remained uh, on friendly terms with his son josh white jr all oh, these wow. years yeah and josh had a very unfortunate experience with the mccarthy era uh persecution of people associated in any way with other people who were associated in any way with workers' rights and communist yeah. party and all this and that. I mean, they're after everybody. They're after Woody Guthrie. They're after Pete Seeger. In fact, Josh White called Pete Seeger and told him, he said, Pete, they've got me. I can't. I've got to go to Washington. And Pete Seeger said, don't worry, Josh. Just say what you have to say. It's all right. Mm-hmm. You know, because he knew he's going to have to name names because they had him under their thumb. Wow, Josh Wade. So after that, he was not favored in the folk world. Oh. He didn't wear he didn't wear a blue work shirt and right. sing the blues. You know, right? Yeah, he was very sophisticated. He was all, he was jazz, really. Yeah. But if you ever hear, if anybody ever hears what Josh White was doing as a twenty year old in Greenville, South Carolina, man, he was on top of it. He was probably the, you know, he and Brunsey were just doing the greatest stuff. Hmm. 
But but Josh got drawn into the whole New York scene. He got part, part of a Broadway show, and he, so he lived up in the Northeast. Yeah. Anyway, I met him, and he was totally great. To, he, we jammed. We played Amazing. together. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed on stage he had, he had never looked at his guitar, even when he changed the string. Really? He would just stick a cigarette up there in the, the <laughs> neck of his New York, Martin, New Yorker, you know, and just... Yeah. And, he, and he'd play, and he, he just, his stage presence was wonderful. He never looked at the guitar. Hmm. And I said, and while we were jamming, I said, well, I just want to ask you one question, sir. And he said, yes, go on. What? And I said, how do you learn not to look at the guitar? Because, I mean, I'm like looking at my hands all the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, you're glued to right? it. Yeah. And he goes, well, you just go in the bedroom with your guitar. You sit down on the bed. And you turn all the lights out. Yeah. And you play. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it, right? <laughs> good, good advice. <laughs> well, he had, an, he had a really fluent picking style, too. Absolutely. Totally. Three-finger so picking. He Wonderful. Must have, he must have played a lot in the dark. Oh, I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, Brownie McGee was another wonderful guitarist. Oh, man. I love that of, guy. that of that era. Yeah, yeah. And I finally got to meet Lightning. You did? I thought, yeah, I met him at Newport. Uh, dig this. At Newport, the, the, the dressing room with Bill Monroe has Willie Dixon, Muddy Waters, and Lightning Hopkins all sitting oh my in, God. In, in chairs at Newport. Oh, my that, God. That alone. Nirvana. That was worth it. That was worth it, the whole thing. <laughs> and I told, I told Lightning, I said, man, I'm such a big fan. He said, I, said, I, said, I just love your music. He said, well, that's all right. <laughs> oh, you're <okay>. forgiven <laughs> yeah, I'm forgiven and I said well man I can't wait to hear you play and he, he as he goes out he kind of turns to me and winks that gold tooth shine he goes watch me now <laughs> oh man so he goes up on stage and I, I watch him you know, and then, then sort of like well we gotta get ready and I'm backstage and I noticed Lightning never came back into the tent and uh I just started looking for him and I went outside the tent and he's laying on his back <laughs> on the ground yeah. with a, with a little pint bottle of whiskey cradled in both hands and a big smile on his face. And he's just taking a break. But, but, you know, so the, with the blues, you know, I, I, I didn't know, you know, how to identify with music I liked and the people that had made that music because I had, right. you know, uh, you know I, I didn't want to fake it, you mm -hmm. know? And so when I heard Bill Monroe do in the pines, which was a lead belly tune, yep. I, I realized there was a connection there and that oh, I could, okay. I could probably manage to do the bluegrass side of it. I've kept all those tunes alive in my own playing. I sure. Mean, even now, I, I sit down and just play the blues on the guitar, mostly just for fun. Um, That's interesting, though, that you really weren't steeped in, in bluegrass traditions as a youngster, like, like that it really, for you, came from the blues side. I hadn't well, really... no, but square dancing puts you oh, right. in, in okay, yeah. it puts you in the groove. Right, right. Your dance, I was dancing to it, but I, I didn't ever think about playing it. In fact, I thought it was... I, I remember staring at the banjo player one night at the square dance and, and trying to figure out how. Well, I had heard the banjo on the radio. There was a kids program called Bobby Benson and the B-Bar-B Riders. <laughs> and it, and it, was, it was the Lily Brothers and all the local bluegrass pickers around Boston 
in a studio pretending they were on, out on the range somewhere in a bunk, uh, okay. bunk yeah. in a bunkhouse. <laughs> oh, we're, we're in the bunkhouse, you know, and it's like, I'm listening. Wow, what's that? And then Don Stover would play the five-string banjo. Oh, and wow. I mean, it, it, it electrified my brain. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I remember taking out some pots and pans from the bottom drawer of the, in the kitchen, you know, where yeah. they kept the, the big old pots and pans and laying them on the floor and playing them with like chopsticks, thinking that that's what the banjo was. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it wasn't that far off. Yeah, but. right. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. But so when I saw these guys playing live with their fingers dancing over the strings, it was like, Then it wow. kind of made sense. Yeah. But I, I wasn't, you know, I mean, playing with the the Cupids was my self-identity as, as music at the time. Dances for yeah. kids my own age and everything. How did you get into performing bluegrass then? If the, I mean, the Cupids were essentially a rock and roll band, so where was well, the when, crossover? When, I, when we started hanging out in Harvard Square after those gigs, okay, I, I heard Eric Von Schmidt, you know, yep. Tom Rush, Joan Baez. Joan Baez came out and sang Tutti Frutti with us outside the Club 47. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, she loved it. We were 15. She was only 17. I mean, yeah. she was... She was young and very and and uh, very glowing and hot in many yeah, ways. I, uh, I mean, she she really was a uh, a spark, you know. And I read some of her biography, and I go, "Oh, I see what was going on." Yeah, she had guys were like lined up, just on a string, you know, okay. for this, you know. And she had such a natural approach to music; it was just very natural. And when I began to hear those songs, you know, I heard like songs, ancient ballads that she sang at the time, and it really moved me. And I, I, I mean, we weren't a blues band. The Cupids were, a, you know, rockabilly band, yep. uh, more or less. So, I mean, we were just absorbing whatever we can do. And uh, when I heard those old ballads in Harvard Square, and then I heard Eric Von, Von Schmidt sing the blues, mm-hmm. and I started to really... I had time to listen. And as a kid, I don't know if kids these days can even hear this music. Right. But, you know, you could hear Muddy Waters as a 14-year-old because there was no liquor sold in the Club 47. It was just coffee. You right. know, you, so you could go to a coffee house and hear, <clears throat> you know, um, you know, first-generation. Amazing. Genius music. Yeah. Oh, it was just absolutely moving. And, of course... The romance of wandering around Harvard Square where, you know, the smell of espresso is in the air and uh, it, it, there's just not a whole lot of people around, not big crowds, just mm-hmm. everybody's sort of very, Harvard Square was pretty mellow. I think Dylan called it the green fields of Harvard, <laughs> you know. Uh, oh, by the way, I've heard a great tape of Eric Von Schmidt teaching Bob Dylan to play Baby Let Me Follow You Down. Really? Yeah, it was a jam session. It's available. You you got to dig deep into the web. It's okay. way down, down it's, in the it's web. It's down there somewhere. I'll, you, I'll look find up, it. you have to look up Gino Foreman. Okay. Gino Foreman was the mysterious sort of originator. He was the first guy to show up in Harvard Square singing blues. Oh, and okay. then Eric Von Schmidt became his friend. And Eric told me, I used to hang out with Eric uh, when I was coming up out of Nashville up to New England to play. And we stayed with Eric. You know, finally, 
got to know him, and uh, he was a painter. Uh, but he said that when uh, Alan Lomax brought Lead Belly up to uh, New York, <clears throat> you know, they had Lead Belly, they had discovered him. Yeah. Now, John Lomax, his father, was a, had gone out and recorded all, all kinds recordings. of cow- yeah. cowboys and blues singers and church groups and this and that. A lot of black music. And uh, so young uh, Alan Lomax discovered, you know, or promoted Lead Belly. And they brought him up to to New York, and Eric heard Lead Belly on the radio, went out and bought the record, and then locked himself in the basement of his parents' house for, <laughs> for two weeks with a guitar. Yeah. And learned every song. Wow. So, you know, la da da the Grey Goose, la 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 you know, I mean, all these great old tunes. In fact, we did, uh, Tex Logan favored one tune that we did called When I Was a Cowboy. Yeah, I know that song. We, we did that as a bluegrass song. A, a ferocious song as a bluegrass song. I've seen you do it. All right, folks, that was part one of my conversation with Peter Rowan. We shall be back next Wednesday with part two. Please check back then. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Yeah.